Welcome to the podcast Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to Adelante Leadership. I'm your co-host, Tania Hino. Season two is a series of episodes that encourage and inspire you to embrace the power of your leadership. We are leaning into the knowledge from season one's previous incredible guests. Oriel Maria Su is novel, people, Chinese writer, scholar, and educator from Honduras. She's the writer of the children's book series, Rebeldita, the Fearless, Rebeldita, la Alegre. In 2020, Dr. Su was selected top 10 new Latinx authors by Latino Stories for her contribution to children's literature. In this series, Dr. Su centralizes the power of children and challenges the colonizer narrative from an indigenous perspective. Throughout her journey as an educator, Dr. Sue has been a strong proponent of ethnic studies, contributing her research, writing, and teaching to sustaining and expanding the transformative needed academic field. Bienvenida, Doctora Sue. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm saying hello today from occupied lands of Honduras. Uh, however, Seattle uh, always has a special place in, in me as uh, I became a mother there. Uh, I lived there for five years, so it's a very special oh. place. Tell us, Dr. Sue, what's your story? Oh, okay, a bit about my story. I left the homelands. I had to leave like uh, millions of others in late 90s. I had to flee Honduras. Uh, and I went to this place called Los Angeles. I hadn't even seen a map of LA when I got there. I was 16 years old. And I had to leave without my parents or my family and so I was there um, on my own um, definitely a very scary place to be in at 16 years old however what saved me was that I was able to get into a university into Cal State University Northridge which is one of the state universities of Los Angeles and it is there where I encountered this field of study called ethnic studies we had so many questions as young Central American refugees. We had so many questions. How is it that so many of us were there? How mm. is it we counted ourselves? We actually counted ourselves. There were over 2,000 Central Americans back in mm. 1999. Uh, we were the university with the most Central Americans in all of the United States. And so we were asking questions and we were going to Chicana Chicano studies. We were going yeah. to Native American studies. We were going to Asian American studies. But none of those spaces were able to answer our question. Like, how is it that so many of us are suddenly here? Because being here in Central America, we didn't get the space or opportunity to talk about war. We didn't mm. get the opportunity to talk about why, how our common experiences as Central Americans from different regions. So it's until we get there in a place like Los Angeles, where we get to share uh, our stories. Right. And we find out that, oh, wow, this is bigger than us. And, then you know, I become very interested in silenced histories. I become very interested in finding out more. That's well put, Dr. Sue, silent history. Yeah. Thank you for giving us that term. Yeah, silenced, marginalized histories, you know, what we don't get to learn as schools, what we don't get to learn as we're growing up in these mm. spaces. This is all throughout the Americas. Anyways, so uh, it is there at Cal State Northridge where we begin to organize the Central Americans supported entirely by the Chicana Chicano community there. The Chicana Chicano studies have always been extremely supportive. I've learned so much. I learned, I learned about Native American history, you know, Chicana Chicano, Asian American, Puerto Rican, Dominicans, you know, how it is that we end up in this place called the United States. And then we begin to interrogate the, the history of the United States and, and, and learning that really empowered me. 
um, how these are, you know, occupied lands, how, you know, the connections between U.S. empire and immigration, forced migrations, exiles, the refugee situation. When you begin to make all the connections and you begin to see the wider picture of occupation and imperialism in our continent, the mm-hmm. American, so it is there that I, I decide I want to be an educator. And so then I go on to, you know, doing the master's and the PhD and I end up doing the PhD at UCLA. And after the PhD, I get this job offer that I couldn't refuse up in Washington Mm. at the University of Puget Sound as I'm just finished with a PhD in ethnic studies. And so I'm there directing a program and doing ethnic studies, teaching the the marginalized histories of the United States to Mm. students, right? What Mm. they didn't get to hear or learn about in schools in the K through 12. And so the more time, the more years pass as I'm teaching college students, they're 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, coming into college. And the more I just realized how big of a fascination the United States as a settler nation has with fairy tales, with lying. We've been taught these very pretty narratives, very pretty stories, Mm -hmm. very nice, pretty, beautiful beginnings and very nice, happily ever after ending Mm -hmm. about what the United States is, how it begins, how it unfolds, right? And those are all lies, but you know, you don't, you don't realize that until you begin to actually do the studying and the reading and the, and, and, and getting the truth, right? And so I realized, wow, all these 18 year olds, they've never once had the opportunity to um, talk about the realities of this continent, which is based on this system of white settler colonialism, no? And that's where the system and of race is born. Mm-hmm. Yes. 1492. And so, and so they're coming in with very fairy tale notions of what the story is, and that's not the, the, the real story. And so I say, wow, we really need to focus our attention on what we're teaching at the K through 12 level, specifically at the elementary level. Oh, completely. So I spent years, you know, teaching, and then I also become a mom there up in Washington, Seattle area. So this was around 2013. And so as I start going to the beautiful public libraries that Seattle (laughs) has, my baby is visibly black. She's black, she's indigenous, and she's uh, part Chinese as well, but she looks black. And so there I am at the library with my baby, you know, and I can't find a single book to, that I want to read to her, right? I know, I know. I cannot find because the majority of those books are either representing the children of color experiences of very shallow or very um, fake, uh, very shallow representations of diversity. Like mm-hmm. if they have uh, children of color, it's to make the book look like, you know, it's a diverse book. Uh, <laughs> But no, piñata books, you know, contextualizing, never contextualizing the actual experiences of children of color to to offer them opportunities to imagine themselves as beautiful creators and resistors that they are, right? So Mm -hmm. you just have children consume all these stories that don't need their imagination outside anywhere of the colonized mind. Mm-hmm. And so, um, wow, the more I spend there being a mom and being a professor to these young ones, I, I realize we have to focus on what our children are reading. Well, as we know, there is a war going on against the truth in the United States. You know, 42 states currently have passed legislation 
to ban teachers from actually speaking the truth uh, about colonialism, about race, about racism, white supremacy, etc. So we know there's a war going on. And, and I realize, you know, perhaps it's, it's not that teachers don't want to teach the truth. The, the fact here is that we're not prepared to do it. We don't know how to do it. We don't have the vocabularies because you can be a teacher in the United States. You could you could get a you have a PhD in the United States without once having ever to take a course on race. In 2023, you can still become a teacher. You can still go into education. We are people who are with young ones seven eight hours a day, holding discussions with them, facilitating their minds. Right, and here we are. The majority of educators today have not had once the opportunity to learn about how racism operates and how to go about having these discussions. And so around 2013, 2014 is when my, in my mind, I just say, I have to write, I need to write for children. I need to write for my, for my daughter. I need to write for her and for all the other children that just don't get to see themselves in books, but also outside of these parameters, the pretty fairy tale stories or the, the books that are shallow, the stereotypical gendered racialized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think of Rebeldita, and that's how Rebeldita comes about. This is the same time that uh, Obama was deport- massively deporting mm-hmm. uh, parents and families, separating families. It happened in my family. And so I, I come up with this character of Rebeldita, you know, which uh, mm-hmm. this is the book probably read, that Rebeldita the Fearless in Ogreland. Mm-hmm. The girl who, she knows her history, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, she's, and she's there to make a difference, right? So... A little bit about how I got to writing and then um, I I decided to come back to Honduras after 25 years of being in um, West Coast area to be able to write and focus. on. That is a wonderful story. It's exactly what we're talking about this season. I wanted to know a little bit about your book. I know that you told us a little bit about why the intentions of your book. Tell us a little bit about Christopher Ogre Colon. And, and the amazing story and what you were trying to portray and what were you trying to get the audience to, to know more about? Sure thing. Thank you. Well, this is the latest book, Christopher the Ogre Cologer. It's over. And what you're seeing here is uh, the English version of it. I actually wrote it in Spanish. I, I write only in Spanish. For some reason, my creative side comes out only in Spanish. Uh, uh, but the English version was published before the actual original. And the Cristóbal Cologro, Tu Fin Por Fin Llegó, fue publicado ahorita, was published right now in, uh, well, this year. May I read a few lines? Uh, please, book? please. You can give an idea. And this is a book that is based entirely on a true story, okay? Christopher the Ogre Cologro, It's Over. And it is a book I dedicate to all children of the Americas living in occupied land. More than 500 years ago across the wide ocean, A, there lived a king and a queen, so greedy were they. Eurolandia is what their home was called right by the sea. Oh, they hoarded everything there as far as the eye could see. Rivers and land and gold shore to shore, mountains and cows, yet they wanted much more. This is not happy enough. They huff and they hum and they wouldn't be happy till they owned every last crumb. To take and to take each day more and more, they had 100 ogres to go steal and explore. With their big, huge arms, they'd hoard everything. These ogres snatched birds flying free with the wind, stealing everything they can. 
And just as expected that they finally arrived when those greedy kings, well, ran completely dry, no more land or animals left for them to take, not even a flake of old yucky fruit cake. But then a thought occurred to those wicked kings. Why don't we just go steal other people's things to faraway lands? That's where our ogres must go. Why we're just thinking of this, we simply don't know. And to head this big job, the kings would now choose their most trusty ogre. So they asked themselves, who? But the answer was easy. A minute it took, they knew just the ogre who would make history books. We've made our decision, the evil king roared. He's the biggest, the baddest, by all ogres adored. He's ambitious and malicious, just totally vicious, ruthless and heartless and savagely capricious. Christopher Cologer, we kings do choose you. There just isn't an ogre that steals like you do. Go to faraway lands and bring us more gold. We want more of everything. Land, clouds, birds, lots more. We know they've got riches and treasure galore. So in the name of our Lord, we choose you to explore. And then the story goes. And that's how it, it begins. Beautiful. Thank right. you. Let me read you a little bit of the Spanish version just so you guys Yes, por favor. Of the incredible work of my translator. His name is Matthew Byrne. So what you heard right now was a translation. En español así va. Just a little bit of Spanish, just so you can... Yeah, no, por favor, por favor. Hubose una vez al otro lado del mar a dos reyes muy avaros que el mundo deseaban controlar. Eurolandia se llamaba la tierra en que vivían y hasta donde vieran sus ojos todo aquello poseían. Eran dueños de castillos, tierras, oro y de ríos, vacas, cabras y hasta nubes acumulaban sin parar, pues pensaban que lo vivo era cosa de agarrarse y entre ellos más, que, más tenían, más querían, más y más. Para hacerles el trabajo de acumular y acaparar, tenían a cien ogros a quienes mandaban a robar. Y tan pero tan grandotes esos ogros eran que sus brazos atrapaban hasta pájaros volando libres sobre el mar. Ya está ahí, Oh, pero en español se llega más sabroso. Sí, bueno, I, para I, mí, para mí, mi primera lengua en español llega más sabroso. Uh, sí, sí. Muchas gracias. And I'm glad that you're working on this decolonizing through children's book, illustration books. Yep, this illustration are by Victor Zúñiga. The first book was by my sister, Alicia Maria Sue. But the here, what I want to say is the idea here the reason why I wrote this particular one, Christopher the Ogre Cologer, It's Over, is to offer teachers and parents a tool. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I realized we don't have the tools, we don't have the material, the resources mm -hmm. to teach, right? To be able to open up discussion, like um, the majority of white parents, you know, they, they are not trained, they don't know how, they haven't had to have these conversations with their children. They don't, they don't feel it affects them. They don't feel uh, these topics affect them because they've been conditioned into not caring about it, right? Maybe they just don't realize the importance. And so here we are damaging our children. We're damaging not just white children because they don't get to have these conversations and know the truth about the land they walk on and therefore the truth about their, their place here, right? But we're also damaging children of color because by not saying the truth about how it is that this happened the society how it begins to construct itself 
when we don't, when children don't know that, they they grow up with very damaged identities, right? We're, what we're teaching children of color every day at school by not teaching the truth is we're not we're disallowing them from learning more, from from knowing their beautiful legacies of resistance prior to 1492, right? We we disallow black children from learning about the knowledges of their ancestors. We disallow indigenous children, our children, to learn about the knowledge of our ancestors, we are impeding them from everything, who they are. And so they're, they're growing up damaged and not able to connect with one another in meaningful ways, right? And uh, you were mentioning, uh, Tania, you were mentioning that you, like, we wonder why it is and the, that, that in the United States we have this. And it's, as I've gone these past two years, I've been invited to speak all over Turtle Island, all over the United States. And I've been in like Georgia, Indiana, Arizona, East Coast, West Coast. You realize the reason why we are not uh, systemically, this we, we don't want children to know the truth is because it's very simple. Once children know truth, there is a very strong sense of awareness. A strong sense of justice is born in the mind of young children when they, they know, they begin to ask ask questions. And then and that's what they're afraid of, that we ask questions, that we challenge, right? The pretty narratives that have been told, because everything crumbles once we know. The systems that be, the power connections that are, get dismembered when we begin to actually ask. It's incredible because in all of the spiritual practice, religion practices out there, especially when it comes a deep healing of of a spiritual belief. In all the scriptures that I have seen and read, it says the truth will set you free. And what a terrifying situation we live in, in that we have to be living on a lie after lie. And what happens is that we continue perpetrating colonization state of mind instead of liberation and knowing your own culture and the pride of your own culture. It is a form of decolonizing and 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 why you're bringing us with this book and just that piece that you read from this book just hearing this that a child's hearing this story as is you are empowering them to know the reality of what we are walking in and the real land so that is wonderful Dr. Sue, will you tell us also about your other book? Uh, tell us about that story and what that's about. Yeah, before I go on to that one, let me just uh, mention that a few of us scholars and educators from ethnic studies and education got together, uh, four of us, and we created a teaching guide. And you can find it in, on book's website, website from there, and you'll find a fully downloadable, accessible, free teaching guide. Many universities are using it on their education programs. And the idea was to provide all the context, vocabularies, discussions, uh, uh, activities that they can lead children uh, into uh, for having a discussion on white settler colonialism and indigenous and black resistances to it throughout the past 523 years. So, so yeah, Revelita the Fearless in Overland. Um, the idea came about, as I mentioned, in 2013, when I saw all our children so many of our children out on the streets. We were out there on the streets in Seattle. We were out on the streets in, in LA. 
uh, children demanding their them not being separated from their parents. And so as I saw that, I said, wow, let us bring this energy into a, into a character. And her name is going to be Rebeldita, and she's going to get children together to fight these ogres who not only stole their land, but also are now separating them from their parents. And so the story is about um, ogre land in a place where ogres go into children's homes at night and take away their parents and uh, and how children are able to do something about that. At the end, that's what I most want for my daughter. I want her to know that she's not just what she sees she is. She's not just what others write about her. I don't want her to just be a consumer of ideas or visuals. I want her to know that she is as much a creator of her own story. I want children to know that they are equally capable and empowered and powerful to write their own stories and that mm -hmm. all of us have stories. Mm -hmm. Do not ever let yourself think for once or be told that, you, that your story does not matter that your power is inexistent uh, on the contrary, you know? And so both books you'll see, you know, when, when, when you read both of them, you see that one of my main points towards the end is to let children find their the words for themselves, for them to write their stories, right? And to not be afraid to tell it. Either you're white or you're a child of color, your story absolutely matters. Truthful stories absolutely matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and they can be engaging and they can be fun. And that's the idea with this series. What would you recommend to our teachers to start decolonizing curriculum and why it's so important? Um, start organizing workshops. So what the lack we can we can begin to have openly create, insist on demand on having these conversations, right? And how to go about them. Um, because there are ways, no? So one of the things that matters matter most is language, the kinds of language we use to never lie, but to always use age appropriate language, language that tells the truth. So very small example, like instead of guiding students through the differences between using the word explorer, for example, versus occupier, everything shifts. The way the conversation goes shifts entirely just from one tiny change of one word. So now let, let us begin changing the words that we're using to, to speak about this. Let's use primary sources. You know, teachers may be afraid of okay, teaching the truth. So, okay, so let's use primary sources. So in the teaching guide, you're going to see uh, activities on actual diaries of Columbus, right? Let's go read Columbus diaries and see what he said. And there you will find the atrocities and the way of thinking and, and how, um, they begin to dehumanize, you know, right, indigenous peoples and how they go about dehumanizing. So go in, go into the primary source. There is never an age appropriate for truth. Okay, never. Us parents of color, us indigenous parents, black parents, uh, Asian American parents, refugee parents, we have these conversations with our children every single day. Indigenous people from Turtle Island, they are indigenous children. They are more than aware of how their lands are occupied, how they've been stolen and how they've been deprived so much. You know, black children are more than aware of how racism affects them every single day, right? And so we're having, so 
children of color, we're already having these discussions, parents, us parents, we're having these discussions. It's really white children that have been to their detriment, absolutely protected from having these conversations. And because of what I said before, white parents uh, or teachers, they don't, they don't know how to go about the conversation. They're scared, it's too touchy, it's uncomfortable. They feel it's, it doesn't, maybe they feel it's not their place or they just simply don't know. Openly insisting on these opportunities to learn how to go about engaging these topics, you know, admitting I'm afraid, admitting I don't know how, admitting, you know, as, as districts, this is what we need to do as school districts. They need to rec- we need to recognize that we are not uh, equipped to have these conversations because our teachers have not had to take a single course on this ever, the majority of us of educators, you know, insist on these spaces, insist on changing the curriculum, insist on how to go about it, you know, let's have conversations, let's, how can we better this curriculum so that we are not just more inclusive, but we're also decolonizing, right, we're allowing children uh, opportunity to, to actually live their, the true histories and the true meaningful relationships with one another by, by knowing our truth, so it's all about insisting on conversations, insisting on truth, insisting on spaces, and to be patient and to be patient too because this is more than 500 years in the making exactly. and so we are slowly deconstructing something that was are the foundations and it's not easy so be patient with yourself because there's going to be a mix of emotions it's like when they say bringing your dirty laundry out is and that's the thing that it has to be done eventually and we need to heal as a society, as, as a world, and we cannot do it with, without the truth. Tell us what you think about the, the potential of arts and culture to empower leadership in our Latin community. Well, part of our conditioning to white supremacy and to the Euro-centered curriculum, part of that conditioning has involved insisting that the written is more important or valuable or it has been given more priority than the non-written or the non-textual yet we know as educators that as humans we are capable of expressing ourselves in so many other ways besides just the 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 written no and and actually our um, our ancestry and our ancestors have legacies of oral tradition and not just oral traditions but also very uh corporal uh ways of translating stories like dance or music for example that's other way so doing away <laughs> doing away with the idea that uh writing story that the written is the only way we can transfer knowledge mm. uh, is part of decolonizing and so incorporating other ways and allowing children and students to participate in that facilitating that is extremely 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 important so yeah of course the arts are as powerful if not more powerful than the written and it could be the written art as well myself i work with rhymes i believe rhymes have the capacity of capturing not just the intellect but also there is another connection that children can make through the musicality or the rhythmic sound of something they're offering opportunities to connect elsewhere than, than just write the written it helps with the hecotic function we forget that most of our ancestry before colonization was done through movement dancing and like you said oral stories and painting we left a lot of our history through art and normalizing that 
normalizing that in our schools and our spaces is extremely important to normalize uh, children having other avenues to which to understand the story or to write their own story to find out what their story is right because we're all made up of stories that's what we we are we are stories what was your source of influence what are some of your values that lead you into this leadership i was empowered by ethnic studies i was empowered by find, by having the capacity to learn to study to talk about histories the moment i became a mother or just this need that came through me. It is not possible that I I am unable to find something for my daughter and I need it because I didn't find it. I just said, I'm going to do it. And so realizing how powerful you are without the need of the exterior, right? One story can change so much. It took me over 40 years to realize that I could also write instead of, yeah, I can consume and I can read stories and I can talk about other stories, but I can, I'm also a creator. We're all creators and um, children, mm -hmm. we don't, we don't insist on that. On the contrary, video games and all the visuals and Disney, everything. I don't take my child, my daughter mm -hmm. to we don't have tv here we don't uh, you know we read a lot we talk a lot you know i want we we have silence we have silent moments where she just gets bored and that's totally okay because that's where ideas come up and she's mm -hmm. a right she's she's naturally writes she writes she writes she's written like five little novels already mm -hmm. she doesn't want to publish them but that's what happens to the mind of a young one when yeah. you, don't, you don't bombard them with telling them that they're just consumers of visuals and and stories that they're also creators, they begin to create their own story. And in fact, it's so beautiful because like uh, the past two years, I've been going to schools, universities, libraries. And when I engage children, one mm -hmm. of their biggest, always the questions children always have is about writing their own book. Like what they get from Christopher the Ogre Cologer at the end is like, so how did you write that? How do I go about writing? I have this idea or I've had this character started doing this. Do you think I can draw this? You know, they take the questions towards creation. It's in, it's natural in children to want mm -hmm. to create. So mm -hmm. we have to facilitate that. We should, mm -hmm. we should develop that. Dr. Sue, is there anything else you would like to share with listeners for, of Adelante leadership that we haven't asked you about anything regarding leadership the healing decolonization anything truly to not be afraid to put yourself out there it's it's a very uh, vulnerable place to be in when you begin to speak publicly and to write writing is that right you're opening up your you're letting everyone come into your mind to you but what keeps me doing this work is the power i see from other women from other indigenous authors scholars people community people of color just putting themselves out there for the truth because we know that this is bigger than just us mm -hmm. and that, uh, to not be afraid it, it really really matters i have been in awe i'm just i sometimes cannot believe how this book has reached people all over occupied america i get messages from canada i also get messages from england from spain from portugal from australia just saying how this book has really helped them i never i just never once did i imagine i wrote for my daughter and i wrote for children and i never once imagined how how this book would cross borders rupture them and mm -hmm. conversations and change, change mm -hmm. the way our children are are seeing themselves i didn't know that until i started doing it that is wonderful would you recommend what books or podcasts would you recommend our latin community 
for healing and helping them decolonize themselves. Well, definitely, I always recommend uh, Roxanne Dumba Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And another book that tremendously changed me is the late Jack Forbes, Columbus and Other Cannibals. Uh, it's a very, very good book. Um, he was one of the founders of Native American Studies. Those two books have really transformed me. And then, of course, just read Indigenous authors, read refugee authors, read people that are coming from the margins from outside. One story at a time, if you have an aversion to reading, there's so many audiobooks out there. Just get the audiobook. Just listen in the way to work or while you're washing dishes. It doesn't matter. Just listen to these amazing, incredible books. And don't forget uh, also Dr. Seuss books. Uh, they're incredible for your children, for your schools. If you want to, uh, uh, the traditions of these holidays of December are coming up. If you want to gift a book, please check out Dr. Seuss book. Thank you, Dr. Seuss, for coming to Adelante Leadership. It was a pleasure and it's incredible work you're doing. And can't wait to keep hearing and learning from you. Thank you so much for the space and for doing this. Really, truly, thank you. No, thank you for your leadership. Gracias. Muchas gracias. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Sue. In our next episode, we will have a reflection with Ileana Ponce Gonzalez, where we reflect on episode 19, 18, 17, and 16. The episode with Lani Renteria about trauma, Emma Torres, and her reflection on everyone has their song, and Monica Rojas Stewart, how we heal with art and music, and Dr. Oriel, decolonizing our children's education. We welcome your comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Apple. For more resources and information, visit our website, www.adelanteleadership.com. We want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and your Latin leadership story. Muchas gracias por escuchar a Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning in and stepping into your Latin leadership.